Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, a podcast for horse lovers everywhere. I'm your host, Tracy Malone, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. This land I live on is Waka Waka and Turrbal country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and to pay my respects to their ancestors, past, present and future. And I'd like to extend that respect to each and every one of you listening. This week's show is brought to you by Equitana Australia. Equitana is happening from the 15th to 18th of November this year in Melbourne. There are so many amazing things to see at Equitana this year. Steve Halfpenny is teaching for Quero Horsemanship. Elaine Hughes will be talking about therapy horses. Dr. Nerida Richards can help you feed your horse for longevity. Kim Hagen will be teaching kids horsemanship skills. Stephen Cox will be teaching about horses for movies and TV. Please go to have a look at the program. It's so comprehensive and there is something there for everyone. You can have all of these events that I just spoke about with your day pass. To get your tickets, go to equitana.com.au. I hope to see you there. Make sure you say hi if you see me. In this episode, I'm playing for you a live interview that I did at a local horse expo. This was put on by a wonderful charity called Equine Action Queensland. It's an annual horse expo where they bring in speakers of such a high quality to talk about all things horses. I was lucky enough to interview Dr. Jennifer Stewart from Genquine. I only had 20 minutes with Dr. Stewart, so you will hear her interview for 20 minutes first, and then you will hear her wonderful talk that she did at the expo on Big Head, or as she would now like it referred to, osteoporosis for horses. Here is Dr. Stewart. So Jane, can you first tell me a little bit about what it is that you do? Well, I was, uh, I produce um, products that have a clinical application. So I was in practice for 25 years and just doing horses and there's a lot of diseases that have in their um, cause or their prevention or their management a nutritional component and that's my passion. Wonderful. So you started as a vet, is that right, for 25 years? Mm. And what is it? Was that a horse vet, an equine vet at that time? Yeah, I started, I got my first taste of horses when my grandfather who was a farrier sat me on top of a horse I'm sure it was a Clydesdale at the time, but it was, might have been quite a smallish pony. And once I felt that horse and smelt it, that was it really. I think I was about five. Um, and then I had a little first little skewbald. We called them skewbald. I think they're paints or something now. And she was a lovely little jumper, and I saved up pocket money and then sold manure to feed her and, and then went and did vet science. Where did you study vet science? I studied in Sydney and it's a five-year course and you can take a year out during the course and, you know, love my interest and love of horses, I'd spend a year researching worm resistance and collecting poo samples all around Australia and hatching them out in, <laughs> hatching the eggs from the worms and then identifying them and then looking at resistance to the available drugs. And then when I went into practice for a year in mixed practice, and then I did a PhD in foals, um, and everybody loves foals. They're just in, in endlessly endearing. So then I worked overseas 
uh, mainly in foals and exercise physiology. And then I was in practice and then I spent 10 years formulating the mitovite feeds. And so just back for a second, when you were a vet for 25 years, what did you learn? What are the key points that you learned? What are some patterns that you saw repeating themselves over and over? Well, I think the first thing is most or everybody really is trying to do the best thing for their horse and they really care about them. <coughs> and the other thing I learned is that that horses have the same health problems all around the world. You know, they have foaling mares have the same problems, laminitis is everywhere. Um, dressage horses around the world have too much energy. <laughs> um, race horses don't have enough. So the problems that we're dealing with are the same. And that's really interesting because different climates, different minerals in the soil, different conditions in every way, but the same problems in horses. That's really interesting. Yeah, they certainly do. I mean, often there's different causes. I was doing a lot of work on bone density and we found that in, in growing horses, it was there were problems with the skeletal development in different countries. So I saw it in the UAE, I saw it in Malaysia, I saw it in Japan, and the problem was that they couldn't get enough exercise into these horses. And in the UAE, it was because it was too sandy, not enough hard ground. In Malaysia, it's because um, of the terrible climate. They, they're just so hot and humid. And in Japan, it's because there was three metres of snow around most of the time. So, But the end result was the same, was um, developmental problems in young horses. Wow. And... Did that lead you to study nutrition and then go to Mitovite? Why did you make that transition from a vet? Well, it actually just happened. Um, when I sold my practice, I was actually doing a diploma in scientific publishing and editing because I had four little kids and I thought, oh, I'll work from home and do this. And then one of my old clients who'd set up Mitovite rang me and said, oh, can you come and be a, a, a vet and a nutritionist for us? Um, it's just part-time so I started doing that and then it went to full-time and yeah it sort of was an accident the way that happened. Wonderful and in your years with Mitovite what did you learn then? What are the key things you learned and the patterns that you found with horses? Um, well the nutritional requirements are the same whether it's a, a pony in Iceland or a um, show jumper in Japan or um, a young thoroughbred down the bottom of New Zealand or in the UAE or in Turkey, that the nutritional requirements are the same. The biggest thing is what's available in terms of feedstuffs because that varies so much. Um, yeah, but the performance, behaviour and growth issues don't differ much and the nutritional requirements don't really differ much, although for performance horses there are big differences according to the climate and here in Australia, what's our access to good feed like? Can we access everything we need here? Well, Australia is so lucky like that. You know, there's so many countries that, that don't have farmland and so they have to import feeds and a lot of them sit in containers, you know, 60 degrees crossing the equator. And so we're really lucky. We have access to a huge range of uh, things horses can eat and we also have the fresh uh, we don't have a lot of the diseases in plants or animals that a lot of countries have to deal with
So we really are spoiled, really are lucky. We're lucky in many ways, I believe. And um, how about, is there anything with our soils here that make us better, worse or different? What's our grazing land like in Australia compared to others and how important is that for horses? Well, the, the soil really supports plant growth. Um, and so if you fertilise the soils or put nutrients or trace elements in the soil, you're doing it to, to promote growth of the plants. Um, and we have deficiencies in our soil here. They have similar deficiencies in, in other countries. Um, so as far as the soil goes, that's really to produce, um, you know, what weight of plant growth. Um, and does that, that plant growth then transfer those nutrients into the horse when they eat? eat the plant? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes not. Um, but horses do eat between one and three kilos of soil a day, so they do get a lot of minerals from the soil. Um, but as far as the nutrients or mineral levels, particularly mineral levels in plants, they're not reflected by the soil levels. Some plants, for instance, concentrate selenium so that they, all, they can be toxic to horses. Other plants don't concentrate. So there's different um, features between different species of plants, but generally what's in the soil in mineral levels isn't really reflected in what's in the plant. Wow, that's fantastic. And um, when you were working, you looked at grasses around your area, around Sydney. There was something to do with grasses and what you found. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, we had, um, in, in my practice, I saw more than you would normally expect of spontaneous fractures, horses fracturing their pelvis or their femur especially hind limbs in paddocks and that those are sort of rare things I mean they can happen but not very often I mean if the horse is landing in a certain way and the muscles and tendons are rotating and the horse puts weight on the limb you can get spontaneous fractures but they're, they're not usually very common the other thing we saw I saw a lot of was mares that were fracturing their pelvis when they lay down to foal and again that's not something that you should see very often and so we saw, and, and also I had a lot of endurance horses and show jumping in my practice, and certainly the horses that were mostly kept on the pasture and weren't hand-fed a lot seemed to have a higher incidence of a lot of clinical problems, mostly to do with lamenesses or um, particularly some of the older horses were very difficult to keep condition on and we you know, assumed they were a bit rickety, a bit old and a bit of arthritis. But it had some amazing responses when we started, when we looked at the diets. So because of the incidence of the problems, it was known that the subtropical pastures, and we had Kikuya, and I think up here you've got Buffalo and um, Ceteria, they have a high level of oxalate. And the oxalate is part of the plant's physiology, and it, it um, manages its uh, mineral... Um, where the minerals are and what the minerals are available to the plant by chelating them to an oxalate chemical. That's just part of the plant's physiology. So oxalates bind to um, potassium, magnesium, sodium, calcium in the plant. Now when the, when, then when the horse eats the plant, then those, the oxalate and the mineral separate. 
um, and that happens with sodium and potassium and magnesium, but not with calcium. The calcium oxalate is insoluble in the horse's cup. So basically, even though there's plenty of calcium in the plant, it's not accessible to the horse. And so we made a, a lot of the horses I dealt with were so doing so well on the pasture that they, it was not really possible to hand feed them a supplement because, you know, they were also fat and laminitic borderline. Um, so we made a block and then the, what interested me, so this condition is known as big head um, because the horse develops swelling in their head and, you know, the heads can become quite um, an unusual shape. But only 20% of horses that have um, problems with the oxalate develop a big head. So my interest then turned to, well, how do we find the ones that have subclinical problems before they get that fracture, before they do that tendon, before they get that, um, you know, changes in their joints and things. So it was the subclinical cases. And then I, so I contacted a friend, Oliver Layu, he's a dentist, and I thought, well, if anybody's seeing this, it's got to be old because he's always in their mouth and looking at the teeth because the bones in the face are used so often from chewing. That's um, a common problem is dental looseness of the teeth and um, problems with chewing. So I spoke to Ol and we, we started some work together and developed something that that we found over five years of measuring blood levels and manure levels of certain things we found a really good response so that was um yeah and then the, when we realized how widespread the problem was um we tried to learn more about it and that's wonderful and I believe that you're trying to change the term from big head because it all it, it all sounds a bit scary when you say big head and it all sounds a bit bit crazy and you think there's something extreme that you need to do but what is it most like if we translated it back to something in human form what's our reference point for it osteoporosis it's a generalized skeletal osteoporosis so um, the vertebra the ribs um, the limb bones they're all um, osteoporotic and unfortunately as in humans it's very difficult to measure bone density um, so that's one of our problems is, is how do you measure horses' bone density and know if they're osteoporotic. Mm, wonderful. And that is what um, Dr. Jen will be talking about a bit later. So we'll leave that there. And for now, I would just like to know, do you have horses of your own at the moment? I still have one very old, old one. My kids obviously all had ponies and, you know, they've all got old and had to be put to sleep, not something I could do myself, but I'd get friends to do it for me. Yeah, yeah. So do you ride yourself now or do you is, is work the main thing you do? Well, I do ride infrequently, but, yeah, I love it when I do. It's always just the same, just as magic as ever. Fantastic. And did you have a discipline that you enjoyed the most through your time in riding or now? Well, when I... I used to do a lot of pony club and I had a little horse that jumped well, so show jumping was my thing. But when you go to uni you sort of and become a vet, you just spend your days looking at other people's horses and looking at pictures of them because there's just not really time. 
Yeah, well, thank you very much for your time today in, in talking to me. And um, I hope you do get more time to ride. I hope I get more time to ride. Um, I hope we all get more time to ride, if that's the thing we love to do. And um, I'm going to exit stage left now, and I'm going to leave you with Dr. Jen to do her talk on osteoporosis in horses. Let's get out of the, uh, the, the big head. Thank so thank you. you so much. Thanks, Tracy. Okay, well, thank you all for coming and how lucky we are to have this day together and in this really, really nice space and all sharing our passion for horses. It's just magic. I think I managed to tell you a little bit about my interest in osteoporosis and I'd ask you all to not call it big head because, as I said, only 20% of affected horses have a big head and... And if you look at your horse and its head's as lovely as ever and, and you think, well, you know, it doesn't have a problem because it doesn't have a big head, it's not that prevents you from being able to do the best thing because you stop thinking there, which, which we all did. But the interesting thing about this disease is, is that it was first described, and we have some slides here, but it was first described um, many, many hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it used to be called Brand disease or Miller's disease because it was primarily found in horses that had high brand diets. So we're talking about the calcium to phosphorus ratio here. That's what our important thing is. And I know when I was at Pony Club and we doing the D certificate, one of the things we learned about nutrition was that the calcium phosphorus, you always had to have more calcium than phosphorus because that's the ratio in the horse's body. And there's a lot of things that can make that ratio unbalanced and you know even now like we all know that horses you know have to have a higher calcium and phosphorus intake but I do quite a few diet analyses and I was doing some little ponies from Tasmania the other day because um, the vet was concerned about the you know I'm sure you've heard of metabolic syndrome insulin resistance you know those little fat ponies and when I looked at the diet, and it, you know, it was a carefully measured and boiled amounts of linseed and um, carefully measured amounts of all sorts of things, but the d amount of calcium to phosphorus, so it's supposed to be minimum of 1.2 calcium. These little ponies were 0.3 grams of calcium to every gram of phosphorus. So they weren't on oxalate pastures. Just forget about oxalates. These are just normal ponies on normal pony feeds and that, and that really horrified me because um, with this osteoporosis we can't diagnose it very easily because the only way to really do it is with a bone biopsy and we did a lot of work um, there was a, a pathologist at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney who was their lab did all the zoo animal work and they had a, an assay to measure the hormone that is responsible for moving the calcium out of the bones but unfortunately she retired and the lab shut down. But we did get um, some interesting, really profound results. Um, and she had a PhD in parathyroid hormone. She knew more about it than anyone else. And as she pointed out to me that once the calcium intake is restored, so the daily calcium level is okay, the parathyroid hormone drops down within sometimes within a week. So measuring it will, can tell you if, there's, if it's back to normal, but it doesn't tell you how osteoporotic the skeleton is. Um, 
So let's have a, have a little bit of a travel through time. So it's, it was first identified a long, long time ago. It's been reported in horses from all the countries of the world. Um, the ones in Hong Kong were racehorses, um, so they weren't on oxalates. But it was just their dietary imbalance. Um, even unweaned foals can get it, stabled horses, grazing horses. And it was first diagnosed in Australia in 1974, um, and it's still happening here today. So the problem is that is there's a low blood calcium levels. Now these subtropical grasses have the oxalate in, as I explained, it's part of the normal plant physiology. So if we look at the, at the distribution of plants, grasses in Australia, and there's a little map there that you can see where these grasses are generally found. And if you look at the levels of oxalate, um, you can see how high they are. Now the importance of that is that the ratio of oxalate to calcium in the plant is, is, has got to be in a narrow range or the oxalates do interfere with calcium uptake. So as I said, the diet's high in phosphorus or low in calcium or where the calcium-phosphorus ratio is less than 1.1 cause nutritional secondary hyperparathyroidism. Um, now that sounds like an awfully big word but the nutrition means it's diet related and it's hyperparathyroidism so hyper means increased and parathyroid is the little hormone little glands next to the thyroid gland that monitor blood calcium levels and blood calcium has to be kept in a narrow range or your heart stops beating your muscles don't move and so that's the number one goal of the body is to keep the calcium in a narrow range. So if you think of the skeleton as a calcium reservoir, then the body can move a bit out if it needs it um, to keep that blood level in the correct range. Um, so as I said, the plants contain, the, the, the oxalates are bound to other minerals. And at the bottom point here that is that oxalates can bind to magnesium and zinc. Now that that's on paper and it's also in the plant, you know, that, that magnesium gets caught up. The thing is though that that's soluble in the gut. So the oxalates do not affect magnesium uptake by the horse. So if I have a look at what's happening in the horse's body, the little parathyroid glands near the, near the thyroid gland put out this hormone called parathyroid hormone. And that's responsible for minute-to-minute -minute monitoring of blood calcium levels. And if there's not enough calcium in the blood, then the parathyroid gland does two things. It, re it reduces um, phosphorus uptake from the intestine and increases the loss in the urine. And it also um, reduces calcium loss in the urine and the manure. And it does that to try and restore the balance. So there are the three main syndromes, you can see number three is swelling of the head. The most important one we see is ill thrift. And I've seen some horses that their poor body condition and uncomfortable movement was put down to old age. And it was one of the greatest joys of my in my years of practice, a little old mare called Emma. And I was actually called in to look at it, look at her by another vet and because I was so sort of programmed to look at the diets and the pasture, we put her on 
the calcium supplement and within about six weeks she was walking normally within about three months she was trotting and could be ridden again and she put on weight and she no longer had pain eating and, and that was just so wonderful because she was looking down the barrel of um, extinction because of the problem she was in so ill thrift is um, something you can see also lameness and it's a shifting lameness so the and if, and if you think about it, when we look at a lame horse, we know it's lame because it's head popping and it's because it's lifting the weight off the legs it's sore. But if they're sore in all four legs, they won't bob their head because it's sore everywhere. So they, get, um, they might run around a bit less than other horses in the paddock or they're always the one that's the last one in the group if they're running. They stop running before the others. They spend more time lying down. So sometimes the lameness won't be that obvious. Um, and, and it can shift and the reason for that is that you're getting micro tears where the tendons and ligaments insert on the bone. Once that little one's healed, then the other, another little tear will occur somewhere else. So, so it seems to shift around the body. Um, the other signs are a watery nasal discharge and that's because of swelling on the inside of the nose and that a vet, um, found that it was very difficult to pass an endoscope. He was looking to find out why this horse was making a noise when it was breathing. So he put the endoscope up to have a scope around what was happening and he couldn't get the scope up very well. Some people confuse that with roaring, which is a laryngeal pathology, but this is purely a reduction in the, in the diameter of the nose, nasal cavity. Um, they may all just show up as swelling in the distal pastins, um, the facial distortion, some of them present with sinusitis um, and tooth root, tooth root problems occur as well. So what do, you, what do we see in these horses? Um, well, obviously we've said Ill, Ill thrift, tender joints, dental pain. They can also have pain at the points of insertions. Um, they, their coat can sometimes be quite harsh and that's generally... Um, just related to the poor overall health with osteoporosis. Spontaneous fractures we spoke about, nasal discharges, increase in ligament and tendon injuries, difficulty chewing, upper wear away noises, um, and then the swelling of the jaws and the head. Uh, this is a photo from Oliver Liu, and because of the swelling in the mandible and or in the um, facial bones, there's not a proper occlusion of the incisors because everything's now out of alignment. Um, that's an x-ray. I'm not very good with x-rays, but certainly the dental vets tell me that that's not uh, a normal amount of um, bone density around the roots of the teeth. So if we look at ways to deal with this, uh, well, I might actually just quickly talk about diagnosing it because that's a real challenge for us and we, we certainly had parathyroid values and we saw that the parathyroid hormone was being released when we were doing the work at North Shore Hospital but as I said once the calcium intake's normal no need for parathyroid hormone it goes back to normal even though you can have generalised skeletal osteoporosis and talking to some of the vets here they um, now are 
and before they do an, doing a pre-anesthetic assessment, they'll look at the diet because there's a higher incidence of horses fracturing ribs when they're anaesthetised. Um, Oliver Laiu, who's a, our leading dental vet, he's had horses where the mandible is fractured when he's removed the mouth gag because it's just so parotic and weak. So there's, it's, it's very difficult to diagnose and so we can't really use parathyroid hormone. And, and the other thing is that's a really fragile protein and when we did the work we had a refrigerated centrifuge and we went to pony clubs and adjustment places and horse studs so we could get a whole lot of horses at once and get that blood frozen straight away. Now you have to send the samples to America to be analysed and if there's a slight thawing of the sample on the way then the protein degrades and it's not measured. So that's basically uh, not possible for us at the moment. I've approached a few um, pathology labs and asked them if they can develop an assay specifically for horses but as with most things they don't think it's commercially viable and if that's not, if it's not commercially viable well, they, they wouldn't go ahead with it. So the other thing, you know, we looked at blood calcium levels. In fact, most of this work was done in the Philippines in the 1930s when the Americans set up their army bases and carted a whole lot of horses there and they were fed um, diets really low in calcium because they didn't have the feedstuffs available. And so they did a huge amount of work on blood tests and um, x-rays. Really, really, I think the military human physicians were interested in it as well so they had great access to data collection so in that work they looked at blood calcium but if you remember blood calcium is in a narrow range or basically you know you die so what the devil in the blood gives you no indication of osteoporosis of how much is in the bones or the degree of demineralization so blood tests are no good at all we look then some work was done in melbourne where they looked at blood and urine where you collect them at the same time and then you can measure certain things and realize how much work out how much calcium's been going out in the urine the problem with that is that you need to collect the entire contents of the bladder and also you would have all seen the creamy white calcium deposits that are normal in horse urine. We have to collect all that. So you have to frighten them and lunge them and really get them running around to stir the bladder up and then collect the entire contents at the same time as you take a blood sample. So that's not something that can be easily done in practice. So that one was out. We looked at faecal levels of oxalates um, because the calcium oxalate goes out in the manure, but that wasn't uh, reliable enough if they're still consuming the oxalates to know how much... You really need a metabolic chamber to measure exactly what's going in and all the urine and manure. So we really... It, it is very difficult to diagnose, and I think even osteoporosis in humans is not um, e that easy to diagnose. So... There's some vets um, in Queensland working with James Cook and the University of Queen Queensland and they're looking at some of the other things that are indicative of um, elevated parathyroid hormone. But as I said, even if we have that test, once the blood, the dietary calcium intake is, is restored, parathyroid hormone goes away. And what we're interested in is the level of osteoporosis throughout the skeleton. Um, the only way to measure that is a bone biopsy and we're looking at whether we can do that easily but it's a little bit invasive and um, yeah, whether that would be something people could afford or whether it would be useful. Again, that will determine whether tests are developed. 
So the way, so I spoke about the oxalates and they join up with sodium, they, potassium, magnesium and calcium. And the one, the calcium oxalate is insoluble. Not the same in cattle. Cattle, they've got a bacteria in their rumen that breaks that bond and so they get the calcium. They also absorb the oxalates and can get kidney failure and all sorts of other nasty things from the crystals in their kidneys. Um, but once in the horse's gut, the magnesium, sodium, potassium will dissociate. So the horse gets all its magnesium and sodium, potassium, but that free oxalate that's swimming around in the stomach and small intestine will then grab onto any free calcium that's that's either supplemented or from another dietary source. So that's one of the problems um, with the oxalates. In fact, in humans, if they get if people get oxalate toxicity they give them milk or lime to, because that binds up the, the oxalate and stops it being absorbed so a horse really has got two problems one is that there's it can't use the calcium in the plant the other thing is that these soluble oxalates will grab onto other calcium that's in the diet so what we looked at was a way of protecting the calcium from the oxalate from the from the oxalates the soluble oxalates that are released in the gut and the chelated calcium is is protected because remember, or I don't know if I explained, when the plant's joining its minerals to oxalate, that's a chelation, that's a chelated. So if we provide chelated calcium that is not broken down, then the oxalates can't get it. So and we looked at... One of the other things is that the oxalate levels in the plants not only vary between the species of grass but also the time of year. So we looked at can we measure oxalate, plant oxalate levels. And there's one laboratory in Western Australia, one of the Department of Primary Industry laboratories that do it. It's about $70 a sample. They they'd give me, gave, said they'd give me a bulk rate of $43 if we sent in a whole lot of samples because then the assay doesn't have to be set up. It's set up once and you can do a whole lot of samples. The problem is that tells you how much oxalates in that particular paddock at that time. It doesn't tell you what the oxalate is in a month's time or in the other paddocks. So it's not really useful. And I think we can just assume if you've got subtropical glasses, you've got oxalate. Your horse is eating oxalates as well. Um, and it wasn't really helpful to look at levels. It didn't give us any useful information clinically that we could then apply to the management so there's not much point in um, measuring pasture oxalate levels. If you fertilise the pasture and it grows rapidly, you, you increase the oxalate levels. It also changes. So it's higher when the plants are growing rapidly. So generally in spring, summer and autumn. And the signs of calcium deficiency or osteoporosis can present within usually within two to three months but even if they're really high oxalate and the horse has a high calcium requirement if it's pregnant or it's young then the signs can you can, the osteoporosis can start developing even sooner than that so because the oxalate levels vary if we're just going to provide an inorganic like lime and things to meet the calcium requirements or to, to block those oxalates you have to know how much oxalates the horse is eating so you can match that with, with calcium. So that that can be a bit difficult and it can mean that you need to be feeding three to 400 grams of lime a day 
So that's another advantage of using the chelated calcium because you can meet the daily requirements. It doesn't matter what the oxalates levels are doing. So that's a little picture of calcium that's been chelated. Sorry, the previous one was oxalate binding the calcium. And when the calcium's chelated, it's just protected from not only oxalate attack but also interactions with any other minerals. So we've developed a product. Um, the first one we made was a block because, as I said, these horses were, didn't need hand feeding or they're just in a situation where nobody can go and feed them a supplement every day. So we made the block for that. Um, which was quite fun and we trialled it over four years and there's actually two ways of making horse blocks. You can pour them so it's like a toffee but they they very quickly just melt if there's a lot of rain or you can press them together and the particles are sort of dry pressed and because they're this of the size range they bind together. You need a 20 ton press to make a 20 kilo block so there's not a lot of those around but we managed to get um, a 20 kilo block made and we did find though that some horses really liked it and so we had to muck around with that to stop them hogging the whole lot and not letting their friends get any or not liking the taste at all. It doesn't taste all that good um, because horses like they like sugar, phosphorus and salt. We like sugar, fat and salt. So if you have a normal block in the paddock, they're not going to, they usually won't go to anything that's got extra minerals or amino acids in it because it just doesn't taste quite as good. So we did a lot of work um, developing the formula so that horses would eat it. And then we had people asking for a powder. We've also had people who'd like to have a pelleted form um, so we've made made the powder, um, which can be added to the feed, and we're still looking about looking at the pellets. So that's the story of nutritional hyperparathyroidism, which I hope you'll all call osteoporosis and not big head anymore, because if we don't have the correct diagnosis, we can't give the correct treatment. So if your horse doesn't have to have a big head to have um, an osteoporotic skeleton. One of the big, one of the most common fracture site in racehorses that have generally their diets low in calcium, it's not an oxalate problem, but they develop pelvic fractures and vertebral fractures. Um, they're probably diagnosed more because the horses have you know, if they have a performance problem, they get x-rays and syntegrity things. But for normal, our normal horses that live normal horsey lives, you generally don't go to those sort of diagnostic techniques. So that's the story of oxalates. But I also ask you to remember that if you're not feeding a source of calcium like lucerne, and a lot of people have have concerns about lucerne, then your diets could quite likely be calcium deficient anyway, or that deficiency is secondary to a phosphorus excess. Um, so we, your vet can organise um, for, to have a diet analysis done, and we can look at that and see if it needs any tweaking. 
So thank you, and I wish you all the best with with your horses. We have um, our, our passion is clinical nutrition products that address or prevent or assist in the management of, of clinical conditions. So the big head is is the big is the one that really oh god sorry osteoporosis was the one that came to us asking to asking for a solution, um, but there are a lot of other conditions that that we're working on as well. So we, if we've got anyone, got any questions? Or, yeah. Oh, well, if anyone has any questions, we yeah, could have a look at those. Like, yeah. We'll if you're feeding calcium and magnesium. With the, so you, you're talking about the interaction between calcium and magnesium. Look, that, that is... Um, the research, so what we're looking at is it does calcium or magnesium, does magnesium interfere with calcium absorption? There's certainly some speculations that it does and certainly in critically ill horses that's one of our big concerns but the research, the actual, go, if you go back to the original report, research papers, no, you can, you can feed um, very high magnesium levels and different levels of calcium and they haven't found uh, interaction unless the magnesium intake is huge. So in, a, in our normal horses' diets, I know there are mineral interactions that are of concern, but the research where they've put horses in metabolic chambers and they've collected urine, collected manure, analysed everything, they you know, those, a lot of those interactions really aren't significant. Or the other thing that they do is derive the information from other species, which isn't always applicable. So the question is, really, is it possible to overdose with calcium? Does Now, we've got to understand that the horse's kidney is an incredibly sophisticated organ, and horse calcium absorption in horses is different to other species. And it's like rhinoceroses and horses are the ones, they have a calcium absorption pathway that's independent of vitamin D. Um, the horse is quite different in, in that respect. So both calcium and magnesium loss in the urine and manure follows the intake. So they, they regulate that pretty well, firstly from how much is absorbed and also from what's excreted in the urine and the manure. So no, you can't really overfeed calcium. And even you know, the calcium to phosphorus ratio can be up to six and some studies even ten calcium to one phosphorus and still the horse maintains that correct blood levels because they just toss it out in the urine. And, I mean, that's part of the role of these sophisticated organs like the kidney. So, you, no, if you, if you give them more than they need, most it'll go out in the urine. Yeah, and I do know some people. In fact, one lady I talked to in Perth who has camels, and they one of them developed um, osteoporosis and a big head, um, which apparently is not supposed to occur that often in camels. And she found the big head pellets um, were useful. I think that they're very high in calcium, and so that probably helps in some ways. The trouble is that every horse is a little bit different. You know, you have a bunch of ponies grazing a paddock and, you know, one of them will develop that elliptical football sort of head. Another one might be a bit lame and yet another one doesn't appear to have any signs. Whether it does, our eyes are a blunt instrument. We can't measure bone density with our eyes, but you do get a lot of individual variation. Um, even the, it, it, certainly the growth stage and the, the 
requirement for calcium varies with different horses, body weight, age, activity level, reproductive status. So, yeah, we do see cases where, you know, they respond and we yet we see other horses that continue or still develop osteoporosis when they're on the big head pellet. So it's, it's you know, that's what makes it such partly such a difficult condition, A, the diagnosis and B, knowing the the extent of the demineralisation and they'll even remineralise at different rates but certainly it can take horses up to 12 months to remineralise their skeleton and that was determined using bone biopsies. Yeah, so unless you want to have a bone biopsy done every month, it's, you know, that's not really very helpful for us either. Thank you very much. If you'd like to get in touch with Dr Jennifer Stewart, then you can either follow the links in the show notes or you can go to the blog on my website where you can also see photos of Jen and some of the work she has done. Go to comealongfortheride.com.au I'm on a mission to create a community of gentle and ethical horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses, please engage with me somehow. Reviews on iTunes really help me. You can also join our Facebook page. You can comment on social media posts. You can follow us on Instagram. You can tell your friends about the podcast. You'll find all the links to our social media on our website, comealongfortheride.com.au. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you'll find me on LinkedIn. If your friends don't know how to podcast, just send them to my website and tell them to hit play. It's the most user-friendly way to listen for anyone you know who would love to listen but isn't quite sure how. I would love it if you get in touch and say hi. Let me know who you would like to hear interviewed on the podcast. I have some wonderful people lined up to speak to, but this is your show as much as mine, so please... If there's anyone out there you'd like to hear from, get in touch via the website or social media. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.